excited today is Palm Sunday, and uh, what's wonderful about that is I'm not preaching to you a Palm Sunday message. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that? Yes. So, uh, you know, put the palm fronds away and stuff like that, because that's not what this is about this morning. But yet we're going to take a journey starting in John chapter 18. We're going to work our way through 19 uh, somewhat next week and then 20 as we make our way through the crucifixion and the resurrection. So we're going to look at these few chapters together over the next few weeks as, as we journey through that of Jesus's arrest and his trial and that of the crucifixion and, and the resurrection. But today I want to simply address a topic with you simply what is, what is truth. It's a powerful question. It's a search that we find throughout all mankind and humankind, and that is simply what, what is truth? It's an encompassing question and a search of life. So this is a narrative, and I could give you a lot of things up front, but I just want to get to the narrative because it speaks, I think, for itself. So I began reading a little different than normal. I began reading today in John chapter 18, starting with verse 1. And so here's the narrative for us to cover today. It says this, And when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden. I have to stop. You know, you know, I always do this. I stop because there are amazing things that we can overlook when we read text together. The one is this, that he calls this a garden. And I think what is very interesting is that when sin came into the world, where did sin first show up? A what? A garden. Exactly right. You find later on that actually John, the writer John, he refers to that place where Christ is crucified as actually even a garden also. So I love these, symbol, these symbols here because what we realize is that he talks about Jesus going to a garden. Sin starts in a garden. And I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to say that sin ends in a garden. And that's an amazing thing, isn't it? As how John puts this together. Which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And I made a note this morning. I said that it's interesting that they go with lanterns and torches to arrest the light of the world. It's interesting thought. Verse 4 says, And then Jesus knows all that would happen to him. And and he came forward and said to them, who do you seek? And I think this is very interesting because they're looking for Christ. They have these lanterns and they have these torches and they're looking for Jesus in the garden that night. Judas is actually with them. We're going to find that out in a moment. But yet he is with them. But yet they come up to Jesus and he approaches them. What I, what I think this says to you and I is this, that Jesus is the revealer of who he is and not Judas is exactly what he's saying. It reminds us that this is the Father's will. That Jesus is in total control. Understand that because he is God wrapped in flesh. It reminds us of that of the incarnation and who he is. And so in light of that, when you and I think that we're in control, and I know we have some people in here that love to be in control, as, as I do at times in life, that in, in the real scheme of life, the truth of life is this, that all life is lived through the hands of God. That all of life is lived through the hands of God. And so verse 5 says, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And I've always wondered, you know, why doesn't Judas recognize him? And verse 6 says that when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground because the majesty of who he is. And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I told you that I am he. What we have to understand about this and frame this properly is this, that they don't take Jesus. Jesus goes with them. And I think that that is something that we have to understand about who he is. And so if you seek me, he says, let these men, let these, let these men go. Um, this was to fulfill the word that had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. He struck the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? John leaves out the miracle of that of Jesus restoring the ear to that of the temple guard. Maybe John thought that he deserved to have his ear cut off. I don't know, you know, but he leaves that part out. He, he does. And so if we were to read on in verses 12 through 18, just kind of give you an overview of what that is for the sake of time this morning, that Jesus is bound by that of, of, the, uh, of the guards. He is taken to, to, 
to uh, one of the priests by the name of Annas. And Annas is that a relative of Caiaphas, the high priest. And Annas, he simply talks to Jesus. And, and, though, and, and he says to him, you know, it was Caiaphas who said that one must die for all the people. And I always thought that statement is very interesting in that text. Because what, what is happening here is God is speaking through this evil high priest as God spoke through Pharaohs in the past and those kinds of things that God is speaking. And, and so Simon Peter, we find that he follows Christ. They take him to the courtyard. And this is where Simon Peter simply, uh, he denies Christ. He's confronted by the servant girl, and yet he denies him again. If you go down to verse 19, we continue to read. And the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas then sent him both to Caiaphas, the high priest. And now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? So here is the thought. Always be careful what you do because there's always someone around you that might know you. Isn't that right? Yes, exactly right. You never know whose relative you're hanging out with. Verse 27 says this, and Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. And I read this narrative. As I have read many times, maybe for some of you, it is the first time that you have come across this in your life. And for you, that I pray that it's as fresh as it is to me as I have read this over many years. Because what I find is this. In this narrative, what has happened and what leads us to this point is this. That Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead already. That Mary and Bethany has broken the alabaster box, anointed his feet with oil. And, and she has dried his feet with her hair. That has taken place already. That Jesus has had this triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And they have simply given him a king's welcome. That Jesus shares a Passover meal with his disciples. And as they sit around the table, he gets up from the table and he, the Bible says that he girds himself with an apron and he begins to wash their feet. Shortly after that, Jesus exposes Judas as his betrayer. And he also exposes Peter as the one who would deny him. Later, he promises us that he would not leave us alone, but yet he would send us the Holy Spirit, the comforter to our lives. And then we find this. Then we find this is where we are in this narrative. And so when we move to verse 28, it gets us into what we're going to talk about this morning and our talking points for a moment. Because what they do, they send him to Pilate's house. They send him to Pilate's court. And what Pilate does in a few moments, as we're going to read, is Pilate asks him four important questions. I think it's questions that have kind of shaped history. It's questions that you and I can all sort of, sort of identify with. But before we get to that, I think we work through the narrative and it will help us to understand what is going on. In John 18 and verse 28, it says this, And then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters, which is Pilate. It was very early morning. And I underline this part because this always surprises me. They themselves did not enter the governor's quarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So there's a couple of truths that I want to simply share with you today, simply all starting with truth is. And the first is, as truth is, self-righteousness hates level ground and loves ladders. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, I'll explain it to you in just a moment. But self-righteousness hates level ground, but it loves ladders. The Jewish opponents to Christ, they refuse to enter the praetorium. That is the place where Pilate judges those that are brought before him. They refuse to do that. They, they remain in the outer court. Why do they do that? Because they would defile themselves as entering the residence of a Gentile. So they don't go in. They stand on the outside. They talk to him kind of through the gate kind of situation. It's sort of what we have remembered from the book of Acts when Peter goes to Cornelius' house 
and that of the city of Caesarea. And, and he's, all the other Jews are shocked because Peter goes into a Gentile's house. And, and what is happening here is they don't go in because Passover is almost ready to take place. And there would be no time for the ceremonial cleansing of their lives. And they wouldn't be able to sacrifice a lamb for the sins of their life. And they wouldn't be able to partake of the Passover meal. And, and I begin to wonder because my mind swirls when I begin to read this text... Because while they're keeping themselves undefiled in order to sacrifice a lamb for forgiveness, they're killing the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That is self-righteousness, is it not? Yes. That is simply trying to work this out on our own. That is trying to cover all the bases. That is trying to get to God our way. And we all find ourselves at some point in our life practicing that. That you can't make this God thing happen in your life on your own. It just doesn't work that way. That you will never be pure enough. You will never do enough good works. You will never check off enough boxes within your life. You will never go to church enough. You'll never feed enough hungry people to deserve the work of Christ in your life. You can't work your way there. And God knows us. He knows how we're wired as humans. And he knows that you and I would try to do that. Because it's easier to do that than it is to surrender our heart and life to him. And he become the king and the master of our lives. And, and I think about these guys and here's what they're saying. Yeah, we're killing Jesus, but we're not standing in Pilate's court. So we're good. That's what they're saying. Yes, we're all good. Everything is good. Absolutely. Can I tell you, in love, I say this to you today. Listen, if you think you're good, chances are you're thinking that because you're comparing yourself to someone else whom you think you're better than they are. That's exactly what we do in life. That's why self-righteousness hates level ground and it loves ladders. Because when we look at other people and we compare ourselves with them and we make them the spiritual metric of our lives, oh, we say things like, boy, I'm glad I'm not him, right? Yes, I'm glad I'm not her. Man, and it makes us feel really good about ourselves. And that is exactly what self-righteousness is all about. But here's what God does. He gives us text like Isaiah 53 and 6 that levels the ground for us. Here's what it says. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, not us, but him, the iniquity of us all. The truth, the scriptures, the gospel has a way of pointing back, pointing us back to the one that brings goodness into our life. The one that brings purity into our life. The one that brings righteousness into our life. And it's not us. So what happens here is God levels the playing ground. Because here's the fact about us. Here's the truth. We're all broken. Yes, we're all, no matter how good you look this morning, you know, maybe this is Palm Sunday. So you have two special outfits for the resurrection season. You have one that you bought for Palm Sunday. You have one for resurrection Sunday, maybe. I don't know. So you're looking good. You're looking all, uh, you know, uh, all sharp this morning. Yeah, but in the reality inside of our lives, we're all broken. You know why? Because we make a lousy Savior for our own lives. We make a lousy Savior. We do. If you don't think that's true, look at the person next to you. Don't just, just take a moment. You greet each other earlier. We all friends. We're all friends in the room, right? So look at the person next to you, Mark. I don't know them. That's okay. It's church. That's fine. They're not going to hit you or anything. But look at them. And I want you to think, what kind of Savior would they make for your life? Think about that. Look at them. What kind of Savior? What could they save you from? Listen, but they're looking at you thinking the very same thing, aren't they? Yes. That we make a lousy Savior for ourselves. We do. And when you look at the book of Acts, as we have been talking through for the last six or eight weeks together, and what you see in the book of Acts is you see God working in the lives of all of these broken people. You have Peter. Peter has anger issues. He really does. He likes to draw the sword instead of praying for people at times. He denies Christ that we just read this morning. You have Saul who becomes Paul, who is a persecutor of Christians. He's kicking indoors and he's dragging 
Christians to jail. You have Cornelius the centurion who is a Gentile. You have Lydia from the city of Philippi who is this Gentile woman who comes to Christ in her entire... You have the slave girl we read about last week who once was possessed by demonic spirits and she told people's fortune or their future. You have all of these things. You have the Philippian jailer who is insecure. He's insecure in his ability to create security in a jail that he is supposed to run. So he's going to take his own life. And so the reality is we all have issues. We all have issues. Yes. And I think that at some point in our walk, our experience, our spiritual experience, that we have to come to that realization that we all have issues. Man, did you know the person next to you has, has issues? Are, are you aware of that? You say, yeah, I know I live with them. You know, I know that. Yes, absolutely, I do. Uh, you just don't know the issues. Boy, I can tell you, you got some time, you know, set appointment. Yeah, because I'd like to share. We all have issues. And I think that levels the ground for us. That's exactly what's happening. No, but we want to stand outside the praetorium where Paul, where, where, where Pilate is in there and he, you know, he's judging people because he's a Gentile. We're going to stand outside and we're going to yell through the gate because somehow we think that makes us better than him. Wow. It's a powerful thought. I love what John also says in John 3 and 17, following the famous 3 and 16. He says, For God has not sent His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And so what that means is this. In, in my kind of interpretation is this, that Jesus steps into the mess of our lives. It's exactly what He does. He covers our lives with His perfection so that when the Father looks at us, He doesn't see us in our sinful and imperfect state, but the Father sees us through the perfection of His Son, Jesus. And that is truth, and truth levels the ground for us this morning. That we're all broken, and that we are in desperate need of rescue. Yes. So you're in a a room full of broken people with issues. Doesn't that make you feel good? That does, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, and you're no better than anyone else around you. They were all on the same journey, whether you're sitting there or whether you're standing up here on a Sunday morning with a microphone on your face. No, we all have issues. We all have issues. And so what this does, this levels the ground for us. Continue reading in verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. It's like, you know, it's like putting your hands on your hips and and kind of looking at him and saying, Dude, we brought him to you. Come on, he's done something wrong. We'll be wasting our time. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And, and it's exactly what they've been doing throughout Jesus' entire ministry through the New Testament. Every time that he performs a miracle, every time he teaches in the synagogue, they're always judging him and questioning him. And so it goes on to say that the Jews said to him, it is not lawful. They say to Pilate, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Can I tell you something? That is not truth. That is not truth. How do you know? Because we are still in the book of Acts And yet we remember that in Jerusalem, they stoned Stephen. Who orchestrates the stoning of Stephen? Saul. Who does Saul work for? Saul works for these Jewish leaders is exactly who he does. Yes. And Saul is never arrested for the stoning of Stephen. So it's not true that they cannot put someone to death. What is truth about their statement is they cannot crucify someone. That is the truth of the statement. That is it. And they can't do that. Why? Because God has willed that Jesus would be crucified. So he has to be put to death by the Romans to fulfill what he says in Scripture, that if I am lifted up, that I will draw all men unto him. It is the hand of God working. It is an amazing thing to see the providential hand of God working through all of this. So they're not arresting Jesus. Jesus is going with them. They're not going to take his life. He is going to give his life for you and I. For verse 32 says this, that this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the second thing is this. Truth is 
This narrative is the painful plan of a loving and a good God. It, it truly is. Yes. That, that they could, through somewhat of a permission from the Romans, yes, they could put people to death. They could incite a mob and they could kill someone. That's what they did with Stephen's life. They could, there's other ways they are lawfully simply given the permission to kill. The temple is able to do that. They can do one. They can stone people. That's what they did to Stephen. They can burn people. That's what they have done. Historic history tells us that. They, they can behead people. And they could have strangled Jesus if they wanted to. You say, Mark, this is a terrible list of things for you to talk to us on Palm Sunday about. It is. But it points us to this amazing truth about God and who is in control at this moment. But they could not crucify him. That's reserved for Roman punishment only. Only. Because crucifixion is the most lingering type of death. The most excruciatingly painful type of death. The shamefulness of it. Because you're crucified completely naked. It's reserved for the most heinous crimes. Why do they want him to be crucified? Because crucifixion will vindicate them. Is exactly what this is all about. It will vindicate him because then they will say, well, he is cursed by God if he is crucified. Because Galatians 3 and 13 simply says this, that anyone that hangs on the tree is simply cursed by God. And, or they are cursed. And so what they say is this, that it is going to vindicate us is exactly what they're looking for. And so what I see about this and what excites me in my heart is Jesus redeems us from the curse of the law and sin by becoming the curse for us. Oh. That this is the will and this is the hand of a loving and good God. And you say, but Mark, those, those words just don't match the narrative because this is his son. And, and maybe it would have been better if he had died one of the other ways that they could have taken his life. But yet crucifixion? Yes, why? Because he had you and I in mind this entire time. It's the love of his heart for his creation that drives him to give his son as that sacrifice for you and I. It's the love of the father in his heart, a good father, to simply have this plan that he is lifted up on the cross so all men, you and I, all of us in this room are drawn to him. It is God's plan for you and I. From the very beginning, in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, 15, said, Mark, you couldn't go a week without mentioning that, could you? You just had to throw that out there like you always say, yes, I just wanted you to feel at home. If you're here, you know, each week, then you feel at home. If not, then ask somebody around you what he's talking about, okay? But it's this, yes, from the very beginning, when he saw the sin and the hurt and the brokenness of our life, God steps in in Adam and Eve's life and said, I'll fix this. I will fix this. And I'm going to send one born of a woman, the, the incarnation. And he sends Christ into this world to be hung on a cross so that when he is lifted up, he draws us to him. That's a powerful act of love of a loving father. It's a powerful act of love. And so when you read this sometimes, if you don't know those things, you wonder who's writing this narrative? Is it Anastas? Is it the priest? Is it Caiaphas, the high priest? Is it Pilate? Is it an incited mob that's misled by, by that of the Jewish leaders? Is it, it is, is it the temple soldiers? No. The truth is this, this narrative is being written by a loving and a good God who refuses to leave his children in the mess of their lives. And he steps in and he says, I'm going to fix this. That's what this is. It's what we read in Isaiah 53. In verse 5, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. Maybe you've heard this before. If not, listen to these words. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And 
As for his generation who consider that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, that they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And this is the part that grips my heart so powerfully, yet it was the will of God to crush him. Yet it was the will of God to crush him. That he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for the guilt, for guilt. For he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. For Jesus is the revealer of the heart of God. That's what we see. As he's the revealer of the love of God for you and I. That what those Pharisees and those temple leaders thought would vindicate them by crucifying Jesus on the cross. Simply brought forgiveness in their lives for what they were doing to Jesus himself. So it wasn't vindication that took place that day. It was forgiveness. And what took place that day for you and I is absolute forgiveness for all things that we have ever done and will ever do. That they are covered in the blood of Christ as he hung on the cross. That it is forgiveness. It is the heart of a loving father revealed through the death of his son. Is what it is. Verse 33, and we get to these four questions. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, And here's the first question. Are you the king of Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priest has delivered you over to me. What have you done? The second question. And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Verse 37. And then Pilate said to him, Here is the third question. So you are a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to me. And Pilate said to him, and the fourth question is this, what is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man For you at the Passover? So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber, not just a robber, but he had also committed insurrection toward the nation, the country of Rome. So he was an enemy of the country of Rome. So here is the the third talking point this morning. And the last truth is Jesus loves Pilate more than he loves his own life. Jesus loves Pilate more than he loves his own life. These four questions are so powerful. So what is the problem and why does Pilate ask them these questions? Because Pilate looks at Jesus and he looks at the punishment that they're calling for and he says, wait a minute, the crime does not, does not justify the punishment here. Listen, Pilate is not sympathetic to Jews. Josephus, the historian, bears that out through his records that Pilate hates Jews. He absolutely despises the Jewish people. So this is not about a soft spot in the heart of Pilate toward Jesus because Jesus is a Jew and he knows that the crime doesn't fit the punishment of crucifixion. That's not it at all. But this is about law and logic and the way that Pilate thinks. And it just doesn't add up for him logically. So Pilate is going to launch his own investigation investigation and he probes the life of Jesus by asking him these four questions. The first is this, are you the king of the Jews? It's verse 33. Yes, this has always been the question of life. Who is the king? Whether it's this narrative or the narrative of my life in in this daily walking it out, who is the king of our lives? And so what we find here is Jesus has entered Jerusalem. He comes in like a king, like King David did of old. Yes, he's mocked and referenced as being the king of the Jews. Before he's crucified, there's a crown that's placed on his head of thorns. They put a robe over his bloody back after he is flogged. And they put over the top of his cross as he hangs there, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. So we see all of this. And we see all of this conversation about who is the king. Because that is important to you and I. Uh, But what do you mean when you say, Mark, that, that Jesus loves Pilate more than he loves his own life? Because when you look at how Jesus answers him, 
Oh, it's amazing. He said, listen, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord? What he's saying is this, Pilate, let's talk about you for a moment. Let's talk about your heart. Because we forget sometimes that Pilate is a creation of God just like you and I. It's an interesting thought to frame him or to see him in that lens. So he says, wait a minute, let's talk about your heart, Pilate. Because he's no longer speaking to a governor of the occupying force of Jerusalem, but he's speaking to his own creation for a moment. He's compassionately probing his heart in this scene. He engages him on this personal level. He pushes back the politics. He pushes back all the, the divertive language that he uses on this with Jesus. And we do that with our conversations with Jesus at times. We do. And he says, Pilate, I know your heart. What about your own heart? It's Jesus, this passionate king that speaks to the heart of Pilate in this moment. In this very moment, just before his death. He is a compassionate king. This conversation, oh, it reminds me of another conversation in the book of John. Also, John chapter 4, it's a Samaritan woman at the well. Maybe you remember the story. If you don't, here it is for a moment in a a kind of a capsule. Is this Jesus is passing through Samaria. He stops at this well during the middle of the day. He is tired. He desires something to drink. He sees a woman coming to the well in the hottest part of the day. He knows that's not normal because they usually come in the morning. She comes to this well. Why does she do that during the hot part of the day? Because she's been married five times and the woman that she's living with is not even her husband. It's sort of like sex for shelter for her to survive. And so she comes. He asks a Samaritan woman as a Jew, which was a no-no to even talk to them, but he asks her for a drink of water. And so she begins to talk about the well. And he says to her, hey, if you drink from this well, you will thirst again. But if you drink from the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. And they start this conversation. And she says, hey, I want a drink of that kind of water. What does Jesus do? He says, go get your husband. Oh, he speaks to her heart. He speaks to her heart. She answers honestly. Jesus says, I know you've had five. And the one you're living with is not even your husband at this point. And what does she expect? Condemnation from him? No, he shows compassion. But here's what happens when she spe- he speaks to her heart. She tries to use some divertive language with him. It's exactly what's going on here with Pilate. No, no, here's the thing. I want to talk about something else. I want to talk about where you're supposed to worship. Do you worship in Samaria or do you worship in Jerusalem? But Jesus comes back to his heart because he's about our heart. Understand that. But we do that. Mark, I want to talk to you about some sin in your life. Oh, but Lord, there's some big issues going on in the world around me. Can't, don't you know about them, Lord? Look at all the things that are taking place in the world. And God, today, today is the masters in Augusta, Lord, and you know that. So I'm praying that you hold back the rain for a while, you know, so, so they can play. Because God, you know, Tiger, he's playing really well right now, God. And everybody's excited about that and what's going on. So Lord, could you hold back the rain? And God says, no, no, look, let's talk about your heart. And we try to have that divertive language with God all the time. But the compassionate God of this world and this universe says, no, I'm a compassionate king, so let's talk about your heart. And that's what he does. And so the second question he says is, what have you done? It's in verse 35. And so Jesus answered, hey, my kingdom is not of this world. It's kind of an interesting answer, isn't it, to to the question, what have you done? Because when Jesus speaks of his kingdom. He's not talking about territory, but he's talking about that of kingship and who is ruling is exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about authority because what Pilate may see this as this whole narrative is some random uh, series of events that's happening. And there's this Jew who claims to be the king of the Jews and so and claims to be the savior of the world. And they brought him to me as another heretic, so to speak. And we're going to take care of business and we're going to move on. But he's saying to, to Pilate this, understand this, this is not your normal situation. No. Because I and my disciples, we live in this world 
but we're not of this world. That our source is not through governments. It's not through Roman occupation. It's not through Jewish authority. It's not through any of those kinds of things. But our source and the power of our life is not of this world, but it is of another world. So our hope is not based upon whether you release me or whether you keep me. My hope is not based upon whether it's an organization or it's a government or any of those kinds of things in this life. But my hope is based upon something that's not of this world, is what he's saying. Yes. That's our hope. That's the message to you and I this morning. That our hope is not here. Because it's not that Jesus is king of just territory but he's authority over all things and all people and all actions, whether past, present, or future. He's establishing himself as that, that he's the ruling king and not just a possessor of territory. Because what Pilate thinks, as he should think, he's just talking about territory. That's what he's talking about. So we go to the next question. So you are a king, he says. And you, Jesus says, but you say that I am a king for this purpose. I was born. He's talking about the incarnation that I have come into this world to bear the truth. And here's what he's saying. And we'll get to the last point that I'm not just another king. That's what he's saying. I'm not just another king. No, no. But I am the king of kings. Because when he adds that part in there, it's simply saying that that I have come to bear truth. That what he's saying is this, that I have not come just to speak the truth. But what he's saying is this, I am the truth and I am the life and I am the way is what he's saying. Yes, I was born in this world as as fully God and fully man, destined to become king for this purpose. But what changes this, that I'm not just come to speak the truth, but I am truth. I am truth. He is the king of kings, not just merely a king, but he is the king of kings. And the last is this, and it's a question that rings out through all time. What is truth? What is truth? What is truth? Verse 38 is where you find that. Perhaps the most powerful question that we find in all the New Testament. But it's really not a question. It's a rhetorical question. It's a question formed or it's a statement formed as a question is what it is. Because when you read when Pilate says this, he doesn't wait for an answer. He immediately goes out to the Jews and say, hey, I don't find any guilt with this man. I don't, but there's a custom for me to release somebody on the Passover. So you have to make a choice. And it's either going to be this king of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, or it's going to be Barabbas. And what Pilate is saying is this. Is there any real truth in this life? I don't know if you've ever had that moment. I don't know if you've ever come to that place where you say, is there any real truth in life? Is there any, is there any absolutes? It seems like everything is fluid and everything moves and what I was holding on to has shifted or moved. So is there really any, any absolute truth and stability that we could find in this world because I keep searching for it. And every time I think I find something that is truth, it moves on me and it changes. Is there any real answers to all this that goes on? And Jesus is the king who reveals truth. He reveals absolute truth. I have to share one last text with you. It's from the book of James. It's chapter one and it's verse 16. And here's what James says about truth. He said, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. They're wondering, here's what they're wondering, who tempts us to sin? It's important that we understand the character and the nature of God. C.S. Lewis said how we see and understand God is everything. And he goes on to say that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. It, that, that he's committed to the good of our life is what he's saying. Of his will is the part I want you to see this morning. Of his will. That there's no compulsion for God to love us. He desires to love us. There's no compulsion for God to send his son Jesus. But he desires to do that because of his great love for you and I. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. The gospel. And the gospel results in that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What is truth? It's the gospel. That he rescues us from sin. That's the truth. That we're the first fruits. We're the first fruits, it says, of his creatures. 
that we are the down payment of what is to come, that what God has started in our life, at that of salvation and redemption, oh, it's not the end, it's the beginning. Because what happens when we come to Christ is we begin to grow. He begins to transform us, and our character begins to change, that we love things that we once hated, and we despise things that maybe we once loved in life, that truly there's a transformation that takes place in our life, and we're a down payment on what is to come, that and even more, that when He comes back, He will make all things right at some point in history. In the future, He will make all things right. But this is not about some behavioral modification of your life or being a better person or just being more moral. No, this is about real transformation. And what I believe and what I've discovered over the years is this. It's not a bunch of rules that we give you that transforms you. It's not a bunch of commandments that gives you to transform you. It's not simply a bunch of boxes to check off, but it's the beauty of the gospel. It's the amazing beauty of the gospel, how God takes someone like me and he transforms them into something that could bring him glory. That's what changes us. It's the beauty of the gospel. Listen, if we, if we brought you in here this morning and we just handed out a, a list of you know, we just handed out this list of things for you to do this week and not to do. Man, that you would leave so overwhelmed, wouldn't you? Yes. What we would find is this, that the trash cans out there in our lobby would be full of them. Because that's exactly where you'd leave them. Because the last thing that you want in your life is just a bunch of other rules to hold me down and to push me down. And something that I've got to think about every moment of my life. And if I mess up, I'm afraid that somehow that God is going to simply pound me from heaven. And it's not that at all. Yes, there are, yes, there are rules. Yes, there are commandments. And therefore, our good to steer us to fullness of life. Life, absolutely. But understand this what transforms us is the beauty of the gospel. I made a list as we finish. I think about the Samaritan woman that we talked about a few moments ago. She's forgiven. And, and when she's forgiven, what does she do? She goes back and tells everyone in her city, ah, and they come and receive forgiveness. It's about Peter. It's about Peter who denies Christ, who loses his temper, who goes for the sword before he goes to the Bible. Yet, it's Peter in the book of Acts who stands up after Pentecost and he preaches such a powerful sermon with no fear of losing his life for the cause of Christ. And over 3,000 people come to Christ that day and they're baptized. It's Saul who struck down on the road to Damascus. And he has an experience with God. Saul, the persecutor of Christians. And yet we find him as Paul, the writer of the bulk of the New Testament. The one that takes the gospel to Macedonia. And there they have their first European convert, that of Lydia, that opens the door for the gospel for you and I. That's what changes us. That's the beauty that changes us. It's a slave girl in Philippi who once was possessed by demonic spirits who was a fortune teller, a worker of divination. And yet now, she's a member of the church. <laughs> Isn't that great? Don't you love that? Yeah. Maybe, maybe, she's, maybe she's the worship leader. I don't know. You know? But that's the beauty of the gospel. You have a jailer who is bound by a code of law to protect and to keep those incarcerated that are given his charge. But yet when God sends an earthquake and he opens all the doors and the bars of the jail, that he's afraid that he has failed and he attempts to take his life. But Paul yells from the jail and tells him, hey, we're, we're all here. We're all here. It's okay. 
and he gives his life to Christ. He gives his life to Christ and he brings his whole family and they're all baptized. That's the beauty of the gospel that transforms our lives. But you see, in your life and my life, in this situation, there's movement as the, that is required. Because this whole narrative has truly been about kingship and lordship. And so what happens in our lives is this. That we sit on this throne of our life. And maybe not using the words, but we say, God, I know the right thing to do. And I will do that. And God begins to have a conversation about our heart as a compassionate God. And then we have that diverting words that we use with him. But Lord, there are other big issues. You take care of those, God. I'll just kind of handle this in my life. And God always brings us back to our heart. And the movement that has to take place in my life, in your life, and sometimes this is a daily, a daily movement, is that we have to get off the throne of our lives. We have to surrender that to Christ, who was lifted up on a cross so that all men would be drawn to him. And then we kneel before that throne where he belongs, not us. And we confess. When is the last time that you said to Jesus, Jesus, I make a really lousy king? When is the, when is the last time you said that? Because I've tried to do this, I've tried to do this, but I, and, and in my words, I really suck at this. And, and if that word bothers you, then I'm sorry, but that's the truth about it, Right? That, that I really suck at this. But God, I place you on the throne of my life. And I know that there will be other times when I lose that priority in my life and I, and I go back there and, I, and, and he, he comes to me and he arrests my heart. And he says, hey, hey, Mark, where are you sitting? Dude, look, open your eyes. Oh, oh, yes. Here's where I belong. Because he is the king. If you read John 19, 1 through 16, read it later. At the very end of that narrative, when Jesus is turned over to be crucified, Pilate says to the Jews, here's what he says. He says, behold, your king. He had no idea what he was speaking. No idea. My place, the place of fullness of life, is here. Because I really make a lousy king of my own life. And this is about surrender. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment before we sing? Father, today there has to be movement in our lives. That there is no neutrality in our spirituality. That we're either moving toward you or we're moving away from you. So, Lord, what's happening today? Because, God, the truth of our life and relationship with you is that if we're not moving toward you, we're not progressing toward you, then we're truly moving away from you. And to be moving away from you is to enthrone ourselves on the throne of our own lives. But you are the king and that is true. And no matter what happens in this world, 
no matter who will be leaders of nations and people. You, Jesus, are always and always have been and always will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So God, we give the issues of our life to you because we have them. You've made that very clear. We surrender the sin of our lives to you. God, we recognize our need in our broken state for a Savior today. And Father, we kneel before you this morning. We kneel before you. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing in our lives and our hearts. Holy Spirit, for speaking to us today. And we give you thanks. Would you stand with me, please? I encourage you to think about these words today. To look at your own heart and who sits on the throne of your own life. To make a decision at this moment in your life. What a time for you to come to Christ today if you're away from Him. And really, that is just getting away from the throne of your own heart, kneeling before Him, and saying, I recognize my need for you. I've got issues, but I know you're greater than those issues. And I accept your forgiveness in my life. It's not rules never has been. It's beauty of what can God can do in the life of someone that's broken. Amen. While we sing, would you consider praying today and just meditating over these things? If you'd like to come forward, feel free to do that. Please do not leave without getting a prayer envelope for our 24-7 week of prayer. Please get those before you leave this morning.